Welcome to the 21st Century Schizoid Podcast. I am your host, Cooper Cherry. Today we have the pleasure of having Dr. Bob Jensen, professor of journalism at the University of Texas here at Austin. And we're going to try to dissect, I think, um, a few pillars of American politics, economics, um, through kind of the lens of three different events. First, the Iraq War and that'll be sort of tied to a critique of American imperialism. Then we will step into the 2008 financial crisis as a way to kind of look at a critique of economics. And then finally, the 2016 election and subsequent political fallout and what have you. So it should be interesting. We'll try to stay on topic. I think these three things are so interrelated, it may be difficult to kind of not jump around, but I, I don't think that'll be problematic at all. So, doc, Dr. Bob, thank you for coming out today. Great to be here, Cooper, and those are important questions to trying to untangle the insanity that is life in modern America. So <laughs> let's go to it. Right. I, I definitely feel, um, particularly, these three events really strike a chord with me because I feel like it's sort of been the continual kind of defeat of of kind of even even liberal ideas or you know ideology or what have you so um particularly we'll start off in in 2003 with the invasion of yeah. Iraq and i mean we could probably do an entire series of podcasts just just on this topic alone because i think it's important to understand you know not only the the contemporary issues that that led to the invasion but i mean the whole history of the region yeah going back to, you know, the fall of the Ottoman Empire and things like that. Yeah, you can start the history um, centuries, millennia back. But right. uh, where I would start this conversation, um, primed by your mention of uh, contemporary liberalism, is really the post-World War II era. So the United States emerges from that war with unparalleled dominance in the world. It's the only major power that wasn't devastated by the war. It's the largest economy in the world, and by virtue of its short-lived monopoly on nuclear weapons, uh, a military power without parallel. Certainly. And so there, there was a, a, a period where the United States could have dramatically remade the world after World War II to pursue peace, justice, and an international order based on some sort of reckoning with the history of European imperialism. The United States chose not to do that, of course, and turned toward its own attempt at uh, being really the world's empire. Uh, the important thing is to point out that was both a Republican and Democratic project. It was the project of liberals and conservatives. Right. Uh, we have a phrase, Cold War liberals, for people who held liberal values, you know, New Deal politics, a concern about racial justice, but were hawks on questions of military and generally in favor of U.S. dominance. So the whole world post-World War II era until very recently, has really been marked by that U.S. claim to, and for some period, really actually being able to dominate the world. Uh, that was partly an economic reality. The United States was the world's economic power. The dollar was the de facto reserve currency of the world and unchallenged military dominance. Now, that's starting to decline, and people are starting to talk about the end of American dominance. Even the U.S. military in a recent report talked about a post-primacy world where the U.S. is no longer primal, prime 
in control that way. Uh, that's a good thing for the U.S. no longer to be that. Of course, the world is a much more dangerous place because of that decades-long attempt by the United States at imperialism. Iraq was just one moment in that. Right. I'm old enough to remember the tail end of the Vietnam War. I remember the U.S. In, the first U.S. invasion of Iraq in 1991 under George H.W. Bush. I remember the Iraq War and all that has come after. So in some sense, the Iraq War is a defining uh, event for understanding this moment, but it's part of a series of events as well. Certainly. And I think that I've actually read that same article, and I think they even pointed to 2003 invasion of Iraq as kind of a as a kind of turning point in, in that fall of American domination yeah. in terms of at least military strength. Yeah. There's three ways you could critique the Iraq War. One is it was patently illegal. The U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 had no legal justification. If international law were applied in any fair and meaningful way, that means all of the U.S. leadership would be in jail right now. But of course, the U.S. has always exempted itself from not only international law, but actually applying its own constitutional <laughs> principles. Right. So one problem with the Iraq War it was profoundly illegal. Second, it was profoundly immoral. There was no justification for it, the loss of life, which could have been predicted, probably not easy to predict the scale of the catastrophe, but certainly anyone looking knew that the invasion of Iraq was going to be devastating for certainly. the people of Iraq. And given that there was no justification for that invasion, it's a profoundly immoral act. What you know, mainstream commentators are now saying, it's been clear for a number of years, it was also in practical terms a disaster. It didn't strengthen U.S. control in the Middle East. It weakened it. It unleashed forces that we now know as ISIS, for instance. Uh, it was a disaster on every possible front. But before you get to the practical implications and why Pentagon planners might have second thoughts about the Iraq War, of course, we should deal with the legal and moral questions, which the United States has conveniently pushed aside whenever it's necessary to try and increase and deepen its own dominance. I mean... Even aside from those, just looking at it from a kind of logical, coldly rational point of view, it's difficult to justify, <laughs> even as a military, like, let's let's kind of accept the um, imperial aspirations and that and the economics and those elements of it, but just from a purely rational standpoint, okay, so it, number one, Iraq did not directly attack the United States. 19 of the 22 hijackers for to for the 9/11 attack were actually uh, from Saudi Arabia, which of course we support this despotic kind of autocratic regime that family there in uh, Saudi Arabia. So, even just on that level, you know their justification of well we're liberating the Iraqi people, which was what you know George W. Bush kind of proclaimed as mm -hmm. this sort of motivation for the war uh, from a moral standpoint, I think falls flat in the face of the other brutal regimes that we have supported within yeah. the region and throughout you know, South America, and we could go on and on. Yeah, so the justifications for the Iraq War that were offered were ever-changing as one justification would fall apart. But of course, the weapons of mass destruction were the key, uh, even if those weapons had existed, which there was good reason to think they didn't, even at the time of the invasion. An invasion itself was not the 
appropriate response. Number two, of course, was to democratize the Middle East. As you point out, the United States has been, in fact, one of the greatest impediments to democracy in the Middle East. So, you know, one by one, even the the thin tissue of, you know, lies to support the war faded away. And what's interesting about that today, you know, uh, this was 2003. We've had some time to think about this, remember. <laughs> is that the country really still can't come to terms with it. It can't come to terms with the illegality or the immorality. It really hasn't even come to terms with the propaganda campaign uh, that's constantly massaged to try and make the Bush administration and the Democrats who supported him uh, look like they were just, you know, good people who, you know, made mistakes. Uh, one after another, uh, these impediments come up to the people of the country really understanding what U.S. policy in the Middle East has been about since the end of World War II, which was not about democracy and not even about the safety of American people. It's about the oil that's the primary resource of the region, the control over the flow of that oil, the control over the flow of those oil profits. You can't reduce U.S. interest in the Middle East to we want their oil. That's far too simple. Right. It's about the way the oil functions in the world system. Well, uh, now that has all fallen apart and the United States is struggling to, to even assert marginal influence in a way that Russia and some other powers have, have really eclipsed them at this point. What I think is interesting, and you kind of uh, pointed this out to a little, a little degree in what you just said, was I think this certainly the fallout of this particularly tied to uh, this now ever-present accusations of fake news and what have you because the media elites the new york times the washington post you know i didn't see a whole lot of back you know legitimate kind of criticism of this build-up to the invasion with iraq and of course hillary clinton voting for yeah. the war in iraq and i think that really those issues really you know were yeah. those kind of tremors were felt and carried on and really impacted the 20. 16 election, which we'll get into later, but I think that was an important footnote. Yeah. So the United States commercial corporate news media, of which I was once a part, and I teach in a journalism school that trains people for that. There are many admirable aspects of it. Um, the people who work in it are often incredibly dedicated and hardworking, but there are these systemic failures. They come, especially in times of national crisis, when there's a kind of rally around the flag instinct in the political sphere. The problem is the news media are supposed to be outside of that, but of course it's hard to be outside of it. And after 9-11, leading up to the Iraq war, we saw the limits of the media system that we have. It wasn't that journalists were actively colluding with people in power. It wasn't that journalists were knowingly lying. It's that Journalists work within a political context. They have bosses who are very aware of that. And there is a, a profound moment where we saw the failure. Uh, we mentioned the 91 invasion of Iraq. Same thing played out in different ways there that the U.S. news media, once the United States goes to war, essentially uh, forgoes, at least in the early period of any conflict, its role as a critical uh, voice, as a group of people who are paid. And in fact, we desperately need them to subject the claims of the powerful to critique. Uh, it's hard to maintain. Uh, they fail. They fail routinely. Uh, but 
when people start to then distrust the media and when the media starts to expand so that it's no longer just commercial corporate journalists that we're familiar with, you're absolutely right. You get a media environment where it becomes easier to sell fiction as fact and to, in fact, for some people claim there's really no reason to even consider the difference between fiction and fact anymore, which leads to an even more degraded political culture, which is what right. we've got. Exactly. And I mean, I find it hard to know, you know, what what kind of sources are, you know, you have to spend so much time n- negotiating, you know, the, where you get your meat. I mean, the only thing you can really do to combat it is to consume a variety of sources. Yeah. But in the context of, you know, the typical American life where you're trying to work a nine to five job and juggle family and mm-hmm. X, Y, Z, you know, there's not enough time, I think, in the day <laughs> Oh, and most people, their media consumption is virtually entirely television or offshoots of television that show up online. Uh, that's probably the most uh, thin source of news possible, even in the best of times. Uh, you're talking about not only investing time, but investing time in print sources, uh, whether they're you know a newspaper and a magazine or online, but essentially print journalism that's based on a culture of professional verification of facts and has its problems as we've been talking about, but really over time is a source of at least one perspective on the truth that's very important, but uh, people largely ignore that. Uh, The New York Times, Washington Post, there are some newspapers still doing very well, but that segment of American journalism has atrophied considerably. Newsroom employment in those kind of places has been basically cut in half since the turn of the century, uh, we're talking about a very, very uh, decimated professional journalism core that wasn't perfect to start with, right. but did offer some baseline from which to work. And so now people are thrown into a, a, a multi-mediated soup of some accurate reporting, some fantasy, some opinion that's the same thing as fantasy as far as I can tell. Right. Uh, and it is a struggle for people. Now, the antidote to that is not simply to make journalism better. It's to make people more politically engaged. Because one of the things I've learned in my own life is that one of the ways you learn about the world is by being engaged in politics. Uh, because when you are engaged in politics, you develop a perspective and you are naturally talking with more people and hearing more opinions and developing a better framework for understanding the world. So the problem is not only that the media has degraded in a sense, the media landscape is more toxic than ever. It's true enough. But the other problem is that very few people are actually politically engaged beyond voting, let's say. And by politically engaged, I mean thinking about issues involved in some sort of organization, not just political parties, but social movements and other things. That's where people really learn to think politically and where they learn. Take an example. Labor unions were once were once much more vibrant in the United States. And labor unions had a primary focus, of course, of winning better working conditions and wages for their members, trying to expand the union movement more generally. But they were also a source of learning and information. There were labor newspapers, uh, at one point hundreds of them in the United States, Labor union members read those newspapers and had an alternative perspective to the mainstream media. 
Labor unions were also the site of a lot of social life. People not only went to work and were involved in their union or read a union newspaper, but they went to social engagements and gatherings that connect people. Well, it's been observed now for decades. The United States is a very fragmented society in which a lot of people are isolated. And the way you learn about the world is by breaking that isolation and putting yourself in places where you engage with people. That's as much uh, central to the question of what do we know as the question of media, I think. I think I would also say, and kind of, uh, this is sort of a contradiction, but I think even via the aggressive, like the way that the neoliberal kind of project has progressed has even undermined things like church, you know, involvement and being involved in your local church and, and really all of these kind of community groups that we used to have and sort of were the bedrock of American culture for better or worse, particularly in terms of religion. I'm not the biggest fan of organized religion, but at least there was a sense of a kind of communal pl place where people at least profess to have these ideas of, you know, there are at least some value in, mm -hmm. in others and caring for others and yeah. elements yeah. of charity, et cetera. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And you use the term neoliberal, which is important because it's a term that gets thrown around a lot and people often aren't quite clear on what it means. And you're using it to mark this uh, embrace in the United States of not only capitalism, but a kind of what's often called market fundamentalist version of capitalism which says that markets are always better, better than collective action through government, for instance. Right. Uh, the idea that markets essentially do no wrong. Whatever the outcome of a market is, that's the way it should be. And when you have that market fundamentalist thinking, well, then you want to shrink the public sector as much as possible, privatize everything. Right. right? You want to reduce social services because that distorts the market. Right? And so that, that system of neoliberalism that was based on gutting the social safety net and privatizing and deregulating and, and essentially treating markets as godlike uh, has had real consequences. Some of it's economic, of course. It's part of why the wealth inequality in the United States has increased so dramatically. But you're pointing to something else. It's also about it's affected how people live. Right? In, a, in a decent society, people feel connected to each other. They feel obligations to each other. They live those connections and obligations through institutions. Uh, you mentioned church, that's one of them. Uh, civic organizations, political parties, labor unions, all of these things. Well, all of those things are now weaker today than they've ever been in the United States, which means there are fewer places for people to come together. And part of that is a function of our economic system. Oh, absolutely. And there's no, I think there's no way to look at the last 50 years, uh, I would say also just to look at the history of capitalism, and argue that that people are better off today in this particular version of a capitalist economy than they've been at other periods in the past. Now, we have to be careful because in terms of material comfort, yeah, there's a lot of things in which capitalism and especially the cheap energy that makes innovation in capitalism so, so easy uh, have improve people's lives, for instance, in medicine and all sorts of things. Uh, but if you step back and ask, are, are people's lives better? Do people feel more fulfilled? Are people's connections to each other and to the natural world deeper? The answer is, for most people, almost always no. And so we have this kind of curious 
paradox that we're told that capitalism, especially contemporary capitalism, is responsible for our incredible affluence. Yet that affluence doesn't translate for people into a sense of security, a sense of connection, a sense of fulfillment. I'm not saying you know 100% of the American public are worse off today than right. they were 50 years ago. And I'm not trying to present 50 years ago as a, a golden era, nor 50 years before that. There's no golden age to look back to. But there is a way to look at the trajectory of capitalism and ask for all the productivity of our economic system, which it is undoubtedly the most wildly productive system in history. What are the costs? What are the costs to human beings? And crucially, what are the costs to the larger living world ecologically? And there, the, the, the answer we might give to how has, capitalist, how has capitalism hurt or helped us becomes a very different uh, calculation. Absolutely. Um, I think, I mean, from the standpoint of how, I think it's kind of ironic that the sort of right-wing free, you know, free market sector has sort of really in, in been able to grasp a hold of kind of the, I guess, the conservative, the, uh, the moral conservatives in America when a lot of the social problems and issues that we see, this kind of breakdown of the family even, I think are, you know, that is a stemming from this mm -hmm. capitalist, you know, this aggressive market-based economy that we have and that both parents are now forced to work and we've unleashed, you know, consumer debt that is kind of insane yeah. <laughs> in, this, in this drive to consume and to consume and without sort of any kind of long-term... Yeah. Um, balanced approach, if you will. Yeah, you use the term free market, and it's actually a nice segue into the other question you have on the table about the economic system, because uh, the first thing to point out is there is no such thing as a free market. It's a, We use it all the time. I even end up saying it sometimes. <laughs> but uh, all markets have boundaries. All markets in that sense are the product of some collective decision-making through government. For instance, in the United States, I can't sell you my kidney. I have two kidneys. I don't need them both all the time. Yet we prohibit the sale of organs. Okay. That's a constraint on the free market. Right. Now, I hope, Cooper, that you agree with that constraint. <laughs> if not, I'm going to find the door as quickly as I can. <laughs> but, you know, we, we have rules about child labor. We have all sorts of rules about what is and not inside the market. And decent people, I think, are grateful for that because there are aspects of human life that shouldn't be in the market. So all markets are constructed in that sense. Right? Now, you know, the neoliberal free marketeer ideology says, well, the market should absorb as much of human life as possible and the government should stay out of it because markets function best when they're not regulated. Well, you brought up the financial collapse that began in 07, culminated in 08. Well, you know, a lot of that was due to the subprime mortgage, mortgage crisis in which Wall Street, in the period that we call the financialization of capitalism, you know, when capitalism moved in the United States out of a primarily industrial mode into more of a financial mode where much of the wealth of the country was being generated in the financial sector. Well, they're creating all these new instruments with, for trading including these mortgages bundled together and sold and resold, a system so complicated that if you asked me to explain it, I would be hard-pressed to do more than provide 
a very sketchy outline. I've been told by people who know Wall Street that many of the people on Wall Street don't fully understand <laughs> exactly. these financial instruments he's created, you know, collateralized debt obligations. Don't even get me started because I, <laughs> I turn into a babbling idiot very quickly. All right, well, well, the Wall Street believed that they could trade those without regulation, and we saw what happened. The uh, housing market collapsed, the bubble burst, and the entire financial system was on the the edge of ruin. All right, so here's much like the Iraq War, in which over and over again, U.S. imperialism drives America into conflicts. Vietnam, you know, the Gulf War, later Afghanistan and Iraq. And we see that uh, the consequences of these are catastrophic for human beings. It does occasionally aggrandize wealth and power for a small number of people, but otherwise it's a disaster. And when we look to understand those, we simply fall back to the same ideological assumptions of American dominance and the need for America to be on top. Okay, same thing plays out in capitalism. We hear this story, the ideology of the free market, of the genius of capitalism over and over again, and it fails. And rather than rethinking our approach, uh, we tend to just revert to the ideology. So if you look at the United States today, look at the structure of financial markets, Wall Street regulation. It's there have been some changes, some to the good, but basically we're, you know, on the same thin ice where we've been on. And we don't seem to want to learn. And I think the reason is similar in both. There's some understanding that the United States is the most affluent country in the history of the world. And by that, of course, we don't mean everybody in the United States is riding high. There's a lot of inequality, a lot of desperation and poverty in the United States. But on average, the United States is the richest country in the history of the world. And even middle class and even the working poor in this country live better than folks in other parts of the world, even live better historically than than more status people in history. So. Uh, Everybody understands that at some level, this affluence, this material comfort that so many of us live in is a product of that capitalist imperialist system. And maybe it's not going to endure forever. And maybe the consequences of it for people halfway around the world are incredibly you know, violent and immiserating. But there is something about affluence that tends to, I think, shut people down morally that when you recognize that to challenge imperialism and capitalism is to, if you're successful in that challenge, going to mean your own material comfort is going to change. Whether people are conscious of it or not, they often resist knowing. And I think that's one of the most important problems of the United States, a kind of willed ignorance that people who have the, the time, they have the resources, and they have the education to inform themselves about how the system really works, choose not to do so. They will themselves to remain ignorant because it is in that ignorance that they can continue to consume and to live that level of affluence without the kind of moral disquiet that's inevitable if you think about this stuff. Right. And I definitely even, just to go back to the the kind of the the big actors that played a role in the to the in the collapse itself it's like so you have not only i think a failure of the market in the sense of the individuals that took out the mortgages that they probably couldn't afford although they were at a, i would say they're at a systemic disadvantage in terms of knowledge um 
in some ways that's a greed driven mm-hmm. element of i you know i want i want this 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 home i want this piece of the american dream right so that's what's driving their decision making then you have the regulators uh, themselves that you know are captured by the players in the market and you know essentially rating these bonds and and cdos like you had mentioned as you know triple a rated you know these are safe investments etc the government um pushing this economic growth of this kind of ownership society for you know because that kind of drives the american economy right is this um ownership society mm-hmm. um so i think you have a failure at every level obviously the the banks and wall street you know were they're obviously were driven by profit mm-hmm. and greed in that sense as well so it's kind of a failure i think at every every level of this kind of neoliberal mm-hmm. ideology applied and what did we do like you said we just we didn't learn anything we doubled down yeah. um, and i think it's important to look at all of those levels so you know i come from the political left uh, consider myself a radical anti-capitalist anti-imperialist and on the left folks like me are always focusing on the private sector on capital on the way that the concentration of wealth uh, distorts the possibility of real democracy in a decent world. Uh, we focus on the public sector and government on the way, as you point out, that much of government is captured by that wealth and the government actors, you know, presidents and generals, often pursue policies that are detrimental to not only the health and well-being of people in other parts of the world, but even our own population. But you're also saying that there's there's something that we all have uh, accountability for. Uh, now, I don't hold you know somebody working two jobs to make $36,000 a year who takes out a risky loan. I don't hold that person accountable the same way I hold right. Jamie Dimon at Goldman Sachs. <laughs> but if we're going to change this, we have to be able to critically self-reflect about what capitalism and imperialism have done to us, not just what it's done to the wealthy and what it's done to the politicians, but what it's done to us, how it's changed our own moral calculations, how it sometimes made it easy for us to turn away, and how in really a very few generations, we've become used to that material comfort in ways that we are often reluctant to give up. All right, now again, this is all requires a framework of analysis and I think a very tricky moral calculation to decide how we are going to assign responsibility. But we all do have some responsibility. And I think it's important to me, that's where it starts. That's where a different politics start with a recognition of where you sit in the system. And no matter how little wealth and power you have, you do have a role in it. And it does also mean you have some power to change it. I'm not naive. Uh, I'm actually, you know, when people push me, we'll have to admit, <laughs> I, I'm not sure a whole lot of change is possible in the short term. I'm not even sure what change is possible over the long term. But I do know, or at least I believe quite deeply, that if we don't engage in that critical self-reflection, there is literally no hope to overcome any of the problems that we're talking about. If we can't in our own hearts and in our own groups of friends and family come to terms with this, I don't think there's much chance of turning the ship around. Right. And that's sort of where I find myself in kind of 
negotiating the political political landscape because it's kind of trying to negotiate, okay, what kind, like you're saying, what kind of change is actually possible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems in the context of American politics, even the Democrats, which are kind of still this neoliberal party by and large, that even that milk toast kind of leftist ideology or you know tactics what have you really has has failed i mean hillary clinton failed um so it kind of leaves you wondering scratching my head what do what do we even where do we go next do we go because i mean where do we go from there if that sort of centrist and obama as well uh, you know pretty much a centrist continued sort of those same policies that uh george w bush you know where does that leave us well, it leaves us in a heap of trouble. And I think the place to start, and this might seem counterintuitive, the place to start is to realize how deep the hole we're in really is. Now, most people will say, well, that just makes people even more depressed because I actually beg to differ. I think most people don't actually understand how bad things are. Uh, people have their own experience of deprivation and stress and anxiety. Uh, but I think when we step back, uh, if you actually look at the data, just look at the state of the world, that is both the human population and the health of the ecosphere, uh, if you actually spend some time trying to understand that, uh, things are far worse than even the most you know, pessimistic person in the U.S. tends to think. Uh, that's a way of recognizing that the goal, from my point of view, is not to figure out how to save this particular world that we live in, what I often call the high-energy, high-technology world. Uh, that world is over. I mean, it's limping along. It's kind of like a chicken with its head cut off. It's going to spasmodically continue. Uh, but the world that produced the room we're sitting in uh, and the car I drove here in, the world that produced everything we kind of been taking for granted during my lifetime, that world is over. The energy to run it, is no longer readily available. Uh, the replacements in the renewable category that people like to pretend are going to run the world like this simply aren't adequate to do it. And the environmental consequences of the resources we've already expended are now piling up in a way that's really hard to deny. All right. So this world is over. Again, you know, People might say, well, that's depressing. That's going to be even harder than to work. But I think once we let go of this fantasy that we're somehow going to magically find the politics and the economics to continue this, then we can ask, well, what is possible? What kind of world do we want to live in? What kind of human relationships do we want to define that world? What level of material abundance is necessary for people to live a decent life? The answers to those questions are not easy, Uh, They take not only a lot of thinking and philosophizing, they take some living to figure out how that's actually going to work. And there is a a reality we can't ignore, which is whatever answer anyone comes to, it's not going to be an answer that means seven or eight billion people are going to live on this planet indefinitely. Certainly not a Western style. So we're talking about not only ending the obsession with economic growth, and trying to achieve what some people call a steady state economy. We're talking about powering down. We're talking about dramatic changes in the world that really are unprecedented. Now, the world has gone through cataclysmic 
turns in the past. Empires have fallen. The world order has been disrupted. But we've never looked at a situation like this, where that's going to happen on a global scale with the ecological destruction that's already been uh, unwound and will continue to unwind. It's a whole new ballgame, and nobody knows whether the human species can actually figure out how to, to make this work. But no one should need a guarantee of success to go forward. And in some ways, once I got to this point, when I stopped trying to figure out how can I be part of an anti-war movement that will block U.S. intervention in the Middle East, right? that was a, a noble effort. It was a worthwhile thing to try to do, and we failed. And I don't regret any of the energy I put into those kind of movements. But in some sense, when I tried to get my arms around this kind of question, what kind of world are we actually moving toward, there was kind of a sense of relief that the failure to stop the Iraq war, for instance, while tragic and the consequences of it for real people around the world were horrific, uh, it, it didn't leave me without any options or didn't leave me without any work to do. Right. That trying to figure out, in a sense, what's on the other side of the, the curve, the downward slope that we're currently on is also important work. And one of the things I always remind people, there's a lot of variation in the human species. People are have different talents and temperaments. They want to do different things. I have friends who are much more focused on how to bring single-payer Medicare for all national health insurance to the U.S. And I'm glad that people are thinking about that and trying to figure out how to do that. I think that's an important effort. Other people I know are more focused on what you might call mid-range questions about alternative energy. And I also think in addition to the short term and the mid-range, there's also a, a long-term project that at least some of us need to be engaged in, which is to say what's on the other side. Sometimes people talk a lot about the lifeboat. You know, we need to figure out how to construct a lifeboat so that when this increasingly leaky system can no longer uh, get us forward, we have somewhere to, to go. We have, we have something to go in. But in addition to the lifeboat, a friend of mine recently said, we have to remember the question is not only how do you build a lifeboat, it's where is the lifeboat going? How do you understand the destination? What kind of world are you trying to build, not just to escape from the calamities that are unfolding around us, but what is the vision of where you want to be? These are the kind of things that I think are important. Not everybody has to spend all day on every one of these kinds of questions. But people will find the place, I think, where they can make a contribution to this process. And again, that contribution is wide ranging. I have friends who work on organic gardens because that's where their their contribution is. Right. I have friends who work on public policy because that's where their connection is. I have friends working on education and thinking and, and trying to understand all this. It's all important, I think. Oh, absolutely. I think particularly education. I did want to jump back just a little bit to talk about, you know, this kind of energy crisis that we face in terms of sustainability mm -hmm. and just kind of point out how successful, why capitalism is so successful is it will sell us a Tesla, right? And it'll make us feel very warm and fuzzy about this. Oh, this, you know, this is an electric car, right? Mm -hmm. But... <laughs> 
there's a whole that's still encouraging this consumption there's a whole physical you know we've got to extract the resources to build this tesla car that's going to make you feel like you're contributing to yeah. a sustainable ecological system right yeah and i think that is where capitalism is so difficult to battle mm -hmm. because it, it will actually you know it'll commodify anything it'll commodify a Che Guevara t-shirt and sell it to you. And that way you can have this feeling of sense of, oh, I'm, I'm rebelling against the capitalist system by, cons by, by consumption. And I think that's the most insidious element of it. And it just is, we're indoctrinated from day one to not think critically about these types of ideas. Right. And you're talking about there the confluence of two different kind of fundamentalisms. We talked about market fundamentalism, the idea that if you got a problem, the market will solve it. Don't look to government. It's not going to solve it. So you got an energy problem. Well, the market will solve it. And if you add to that market fundamentalism a kind of technological fundamentalism, a belief that there's always a gadget that will fix things, well, then you've got an explanation of Tesla and the obsession with electric cars. And it's not that any one of these technologies is in and of itself wrong or bad. It's the belief that these technologies, which will then disseminate through the culture, through market pressure or market methods, is somehow going to solve the problem. And it simply won't. It will perhaps, it does provide the illusion of a solution. And it might allow us to limp along for a few more years than we otherwise would. But there is a simple point here. If the human species is going to continue to live on this planet in anything like the level we understand, you know, large-scale societies, millions and billions of people. If the human species is going to continue, it's going to be because we put a cap on carbon that collectively, through mutual coercion, mutually agreed upon, we are going to cap our energy consumption. We're just going to have to say this is it. Now, that can only be done through government. That can only be done through some collective effort. The market can't do that. The market won't do that. It's impossible. Uh, and so this technological fundamentalism married to market fundamentalism that says all problems will be solved by more high technology that will make its way through society through the market is simply diverting us from the reality that we have actually a very interesting task in front of us that no species on this planet has ever had to undertake. We have to limit our scramble for energy-rich carbon because that's what life is on this planet. If you think about what is life, well, it's the scramble for energy-rich carbon. Organisms do it, and they tend to do it without limits. The limits come when they're needed from nature from ecosystems. Right? Populations expand too quickly and then they drop off. All right. Well, human beings have, in a sense, jumped over those limits through the ability to tap the incredibly dense energy in first coal, then oil and natural gas, to some degree nuclear. We've been so successful at that for the industrial period that we've sort of persuaded ourselves that we're not subject to the laws of physics and chemistry. <laughs> and that's going to have to change. And the thing that we're going to have to do, which again, no other organism has ever had to do, is consciously limit the amount of energy we consume. And can the species do that? That's an interesting question. It's not in our nature. I mean, there is human nature. And human nature, like 
the nature of all life is to absorb that energy rich carbon. Okay. Right. So, you know, that's maybe one could say kind of philosophical and beside the point. I think it's actually right at the heart of the point. If we don't understand that and can't cope with that, I don't think there's any hope that there's going to be a decent human future. In fact, there may not be a human future at all if we can't come to terms with that. Right. And I I think from a practical standpoint, what the difficulty we run into combating, and particularly when it comes to energy, is obviously whenever we even enact something as, you know, potentially as moderate of a solution as, say, uh, a carbon tax, the market punishes the those with the least resources among us, right? So the people that are going to get impacted the most mm-hmm. by those raised energy costs yeah. are going to be the people at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, right? Which is a difficult ar- argument to overcome, especially in the political sphere, particularly, again, in the context where we are. And I just don't know how to how to overcome that obstacle because I think it's a difficult argument for, for us to make. Yeah. Other than, obviously, this... You know, our message of, you know, this is unsustainable, it's not working, right? Yeah. And, you know, the continued loss of biodiversity, et cetera, et cetera, just really hasn't caught up to people. You know, it's not it's not real. It's a very abstract yeah. idea for a lot of people. Yeah. So people have pointed out that, you know, unlike uh, World War II, where there was an immediate threat from, you know, a fascist state and people could rally and sacrifice. The problem with the ecological crisis is that it's, you said abstract, it's sometimes seen as being off in the future or somewhere else. The incremental uh, degradation isn't always evident and therefore people can't assess the risk. Uh, And okay, that's true enough. It is hard uh, to sit at any one moment and recognize the consequences of climate change, the loss of biodiversity, topsoil erosion, then, you know, nitrogen, run off into the rivers, which, you know, produces dead zones in the Gulf and the amount of plastic in the ocean and, you know, on and on. It's hard to to see that as a threat in the same way that you can see German armies crossing into Poland right. as a threat. And therefore, the things that we needed to do then, for instance, rationing, right? The United States had a system of rationing in World War II to meet the needs of the war industry, right? Well, the threat of the ecological crises is far more dramatic, but rationing is almost impossible to imagine passing right. because people's conception of the threat is different. Right? Well, that's true enough. But it's also true to go back to an earlier point that it's not just about the threat, it's about what we've come to understand as a good life. And we have in a very short time, I think in human history, redefined that to being almost entirely about material consumption and the accumulation of wealth. Uh, And, you know, things that, again, we don't want to pretend there was some golden age when, you know, wealth was distributed equally and everybody was happy and everybody was, you know, sitting around thinking about the common good. But there is something in capitalism's ideology that has been phenomenally successful at normalizing conditions that, in other eras would have been seen as profoundly inhuman. Uh, The concentration of wealth is, you know, at the heart of this. Uh, And to to go into 
the conversation about contemporary politics, the the process going forward to the degree that now a president who can be elected, whose only claim to any sort of special status in the world is his ability to concentrate that wealth and do it in a sort of strange way through a creative scamming of the system by knowing how to play the financial system to knowing how to the, go. Tax, the tax system and and the ultimate creation of non-value in a brand in which a person's name becomes worth money for reasons that are really hard to fathom once you stop to think about it so it's not only that we have a really rich guy for a president uh, he's a really rich guy who's made his money through the overt manipulation of a system that produces in the end in his case nothing literally nothing his entire empire now is based on the illusion that his name has value right well that's you know a particular concern for some of us that this person is sitting in the white house but it's not it's not just about Trump. It's about what made Trump possible. Right. Uh, and that's disconcerting for people who want to figure out how to do politics in a different way. I completely agree in that I think Trump is, I, I think a, he's a symptom of this kind of, and I believe in, I, as uncomfortable as I am with saying this, kind of the moral decline that we're talking about spurred on by this kind of aggressive form of capitalism. Well, I would just interrupt. Why, why would you be hesitant to call it a moral decline? It's a profoundly immoral world we live in. Here, I think we have to, and I think this is really important on the left, to, to understand what we mean by morality. Uh, because of the way the right, especially the conservative Christian right, has captured in political discourse the term morality, to mean the imposition of a very narrow form of sexual morality, for instance. People on the left are often afraid of talking about it, and I think that's a mistake. Because underneath any politics is a set of assumptions and assertions about how people should behave. What are our obligations to each other? What does it mean to be human? What is the nature of a good life? Those are all moral questions. And in everybody's politics has an underlying moral basis to it. It has some answer to the question of what does it mean to be human and what is a good life? And to pretend that these aren't moral issues, I think, is dangerous. We should be embracing the moral underpinnings. And in that sense, I don't have any problem saying that Donald Trump is a profoundly immoral human being, not simply for his predatory sexual behavior. That is immoral in a certain sense but is a profoundly immoral person for the way that he has defined his own life through the accumulation of wealth at whatever cost to other people, the way that he has defined what it means to lead a good life and what it means to be human for himself, which, of course, has implications for people around him. He's a very immoral person. Oh, I, I kind of, I've referred to him as capitalism with its dick out, so mm. it's kind of just... <laughs> flaunting its yeah. authority and and here if you start thinking about that well then all right donald trump is a sexual predator who is constantly self-aggrandizing based on 
either the perception of his wealth or whatever wealth he actually has. Well, that's not unique to Donald Trump. It's not really unique to Republicans. Uh, Bill Clinton was a president who was a sexual predator uh, in a period when the Democratic Party was increasingly hospitable to the wealthy and in fact courted those wealthy as a political strategy to raise money and, and capture power. So that's not to say there's no distinction between Republican and Democratic Party policies. It's not to say there's no distinction between individual people who might identify with one or another ideology. It means that we can't pretend that Donald Trump is somehow kind of an alien who's wandered into American politics with no history. Uh, and that it's dangerous, I think, to pretend he's not the product of these systems, uh, as opposed to you know, being you know, a creature from the void. Uh, nobody is a creature from the void. Everybody comes out of the culture that they're part of. We made Donald Trump, all of us, collectively. I would absolutely agree with that. And, oh. <laughs> But again, it doesn't mean that everybody has the same level of responsibility for that. Right. right. And one can recognize you're part of a culture and also be in resistance to it. Right? So I live in the United States. I'm part of the University of Texas at Austin. The United States is not a political culture I endorse. The values of the University of Texas at Austin are not values I endorse. I'm in some sense responsible for my own place in those systems. But I can also use my place in those systems as a place from which to resist. And people do that all the time. All right. To say that we're all in some ways best, we're, it's good for us all to critically self-reflect about our place in these systems is not to say that that means we're all you know, unable to resist. It just means that it starts, that process of resistance starts with some sort of honesty about ourselves. I think in many ways it's kind of it's sort of poetic that Trump did get elected and represents us because I think he just, I mean, in many ways he is kind of the avatar of what we have become, right? Well, yeah, I mean, and so who is we? We collectively, yes, this is the society we right. live in and this is what we produced. Uh, but it isn't all of us who produced it equally. So that's why oh, yeah. it's important to have this kind of conversation, uh, to recognize that Donald Trump is both of us and apart from us. He is both a product of the American political system and the beginning of an aberration that we should mark. All these things are true. Uh, and they make it hard. It's much easier, and I see people do it all the time, to simply say, well, Donald Trump is the embodiment of evil. The Republican parties are evil for allowing this to happen. And the only thing that can change the world is to throw the bums out and elect Democrats in the midterms and then in 2020. Well, I don't have any problem with you know, voting for people to replace a Republican majority in the House, the Senate. That would be great in the midterms. It's going to happen, but it would be great. It would be great to put a more, you know, morally <laughs> defensible person in the White House in 2020. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, in some sense, it's not the most important part of the story. The most important part of the story is to, to step back and again say, what is the nature of 
the larger living world of which we're a part. Because Republican or Democrat in the White House, we're still heading toward the cliff. And I don't want to be overly dramatic, but I don't think that's hyperbole. The system is unsustainable, which means it can't be sustained indefinitely, which means unless there are major changes, there will be a system breakdown. That's the cliff. And at the cliff, you know, the metaphor doesn't really work because not everybody's going to die when we go over the cliff and hit the bottom. But when we go over the cliff, it's going to be unlike anything we've experienced in the past. And let's say, you know, we're heading that way and the Republicans are driving us that direction 100 miles an hour and the Democrats would drive us that direction at 50 miles an hour. Yeah, I'd rather be in the 50 mile an hour <laughs> car because it gives you more time to think about alternatives. But without change, that 50 mile an hour car is going to get to the same place. And that's why the obsession with Trump that is easy to understand is dangerous. The idea that by tossing out Trump and the people who enabled Trump and the Republican Party, the idea that we would produce a significant shift in American politics, I think, is an illusion. Oh, I agree. I absolutely agree. I think that, like you said, to radically engage with the systemic issues that have created the climate for someone like this to run the country is where, you know, that's we've got to grab this thing by the roots. And I, I just don't think that people really, like you're saying, we have such inertia going back centuries. I think that it's difficult, you know, even if we stop now, mm -hmm. right, it's kind of like turning around the Titanic. If an iceberg is coming up, it's going to take us, even if we wanted to try to turn that boat around, it's going to take forever, right? Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of a, maybe a good place to end because uh, I've been thinking this way for some time now. I'm 59 years old. And it was probably about 10 years ago that I first started thinking it was really important to talk about this stuff. And, you know, I thought, well, maybe I'm just going to be a cranky old guy. But uh, whether that's true or not, to some degree, it probably is. <laughs> it still seemed important. And I remember when I first started doing, when I was doing talks that people would invite me to talk about media or talk about economics or talk about the war. And I would be in front of an audience and... I wasn't sure what they thought about the ecological crises, for instance. But I would say that in addition to the problem of U.S. imperialism or the problem of capitalism or the problem of a commercial media system that produces a distorted worldview, there's also this overarching question of the health of the ecosystems on which our own lives depend. And all of the news on that front is bad getting worse and as time goes on getting worse faster than we really originally anticipated and when I started talking about that I thought audiences were going to roll their eyes and say oh god you know, there's another doom and gloomer and what I found was quite interesting is that people looked relieved there was that kind of sense of uh, a, a release of tension and I think what was happening is that people progressive people people you know, who really do want to see the world become a more just and equal place. People who might be working on police violence or anti-war activity or economic justice or whatever it is, they pay attention to the data because when you're on the left and you're trying to fix things, you have to pay attention to the data. And if you pay attention to the ecological data, it's hard not to come to the conclusion that we're in big, big trouble. 
But because so few people will talk about that in public, and we're talking about 10, 15 years ago when it was less a topic of conversation, people felt like they had nowhere to go with their own fear, their own anxiety. And so for somebody from the podium to speak of that, acknowledge it, and essentially say, you're not crazy if you're scared, I think was very helpful to people. And that taught me that rather than shutting up and keeping my fears and anxieties to myself, it was far better to voice them. And in voicing them, allow people to start to work through their own fear and anxiety, which is the only way you're going to get to possible solutions. And the solutions may not be able to fix everything, but they may help. And that's why I'm talking more and more about this question of of collapse, of not the collapse of the entire world, but the collapse of the systems that have structured that world and what's going to come in their place. I, I wrote a little pamphlet once called We're All Apocalyptic Now. And what I meant by that was not apocalyptic in the kind of conservative Christian rapture sense of the world, you know, falling apart and the chosen being lifted, obviously. I was talking about it in the in the sense of the word's actual meaning, apocalyptic and revelation. One is Greek, one is Latin. They actually mean the same thing. They don't mean the end of the world. They mean the lifting of a veil, the coming to clarity. You're, you see clearly now. And in that sense, I think we are all, or we should all be apocalyptic. We should be willing to see clearly and speak honestly about what we see. Uh, from that point then, things are possible. Not everything is possible. There are some things that have been closed off to us by the damage we've done to the larger living world. Uh, but something is possible. And that's why, although very few people agree with me, I think I'm just a sunny, optimistic person because <laughs> I, I think I've looked at the reality. And instead of giving up, I've tried to figure out where I can make a contribution where I can do things that will not only make me feel better, but help the project go forward to make a better world. Uh, and when you've, when you can say that you're still doing that after you've looked starkly at that reality, uh, I think all sorts of new options open up. Just to wrap up on that same idea that kind of made me think that or I've had this sort of thought that, you know, the election of Trump is in many ways, I mean, I guess this is, I sort of have to force myself to look at this is a good thing in the sense of it is unmasking what I feel like is things have always been, like you said, there is no golden era, right? We've always existed in this kind of exploitative, you know, mm -hmm. there's con there's conflict, there's all kinds of craziness going on at all times. And I think the internet and the proliferation of information have really made us more aware of that. And I think Trump is kind of a crescendo in that song of humanity. And I definitely agree that the paradigm is changing as far as what can be sustained. But I, I definitely feel like if it wasn't for Trump's election, I probably wouldn't have done this podcast. Mm -hmm. So I think that is at least some element of, of a positive, you yeah. know, step forward is to engage people with ideas and, and, you know, I'll that's all you can do, really. <laughs> I'll offer a friendly minute. You said that maybe we could look at the election of Trump as a good thing. 
And I would just suggest a slight edit to that. The election of Trump is a thing. <laughs> Good, bad, or indifferent, it is a thing. Right. And we, and this is the point you're making, we all have to respond to that. And that is a profoundly moral question, how we're going to respond. Whether, you know, some people on the left should have campaigned more vigorously for Hillary Clinton to stave off the insanity, people can argue and will argue. Uh, at this point, though, the election of Trump is a thing. The Trump presidency is a thing. And it's a thing that poses uh, a threat. Some of the threats it poses we're used to, some are new. And whether it was good or bad to wake up America, this, that, or whatever, uh, history can sort that one out. The real question right now is what are individual people going to do? How are they going to come together? As I said, some of the people I consider friends are going to commit more energy to the Democratic Party because they think that's a vehicle. Other friends believe the Democratic Party is a dead end and are doing traditional social movement activities. Some people I know see the ecological crises and want to go want to go local. They want to go to a place and start constructing an alternative way to live. Others want to work on environmental policy. You know, let a hundred flowers bloom and out of that we'll hope some options are created and that's all we can do right now uh, and Donald Trump will continue uh, we can't not pay attention to it because it's a threat people who say to me oh I don't even bother listening to the news scare me because I can't imagine not trying to understand what's happening but not being limited by what's happening in DC is also important uh, people will find their way in different ways I think that's a great way to to close on, on a positive note. And once again, Dr. Jensen, thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Appreciate it.